sex hour. My name has sex in it, so let's talk about it. When I was four years old, I remember playground jokes and knowing how to respond even when I didn't understand them. In uniform, I watched every person that shook my hand drag their eyes across my name tape. I am fluent in what their eyes are hiding. Everyone flinches. I made jokes and buried my sexuality. I can build bridges between prudes and perverts. Lauded for my humor and androgyny, now I hold cognitive dissonance pride for my conduct most days, but sometimes a sweet sadness for the smothered youthful virility that other soldiers are known for. That is Sex Hour by Amy Sex Hour, um, discussing her last name, obviously, in her new book, recently published by Dead Reckoning Collective, called Poppies. Um, I really enjoyed reading Poppies. I thought, uh, you know, when, when I see somebody's been published by Dead Reckoning Collective, uh, frankly, it's pretty good bona fides. I, I feel pretty comfortable inviting them on the show, um, sight unseen, because I know that the work is probably going to be pretty good, and there's going to be a lot of um, of subject matter for us to go through. And that was certainly the case uh, with Amy Sex Hour. Um, reading Poppies after I booked her on the show, uh, I was I, I loved it. it. It's incredibly accessible writing unpretentious, unvarnished, frank, incredibly personal. Um, as we talk about on the show, how, how she put the man, uh, manuscript together and, and how the, uh, the, what the editing process was like. Uh, certainly the narrative uh, and the kind of general chronology uh, that comes across uh, in the book is, uh, you know, makes it a page turner. It makes you want to see how uh, Amy evolves. Um, at least the character of Amy, let's say, in her writing. But I loved it. Uh, Amy herself is uh, great to talk to. I mean, man, that was uh, yet another episode where it felt like we'd been talking for maybe 30 minutes. Uh, and I was like, ah, sure, we're coming up on an hour, so we should probably end it. And then I looked, and we'd been at it for two hours. So uh, just a real credit to her and to the diverse amount of subjects that she covers in the book, everything from motherhood to war, to um, gender. Uh, it was just a, uh, it all done very, very well. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. I'm sure if it's if it's a quarter as interesting to listen to as it was for me to talk about with her, I think you guys are in for a real treat. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I am the artistic director of the Veterans Repertory Theater. And this is the Savage Wonder of Amy Sex Hour. We're live, Amy. Hey, Hi. what's up? <laughs> all right. So you said you were just getting home from work. Yes. Okay. So all right, uh, that's a uh, good gig. They let you out at about thirteen hundred every day. I mean, I did not. I don't usually leave this early. I, I definitely left work for you. So. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm okay. Well, I'll, I'll definitely make this worthwhile then. Um, I will not phone this one in. I, I will zoom it in, but I won't phone it in. I also told my boss I had an appointment. I didn't say I was recording a podcast. <laughs> so now we've just dimed you out and that will all yeah. blow up on you, you when know, the episode comes up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think you'd be mad about it, but. Um, well, listen, so this is, um, this is really exciting for me. I was really glad 
for, for a couple of reasons. For one thing, I got your book in enough time that I was able to read all of it. Oh, and um, I, I, I can't stand it when that doesn't happen. And we had so many hiccups with the supply chain and all that over the last yeah. couple months. It was really driving me nuts. So I was really glad that I got it. Um, it's so funny because just on a very superficial level, your name like stood out to me because uh, it just sounded poetic. It yeah. sounded like the name that years from now they'll go, yeah, I, I, I like the early Amy Sexhour stuff before she got into blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. and so that was what in, uh, initially I was like, boy, she's got a great name for a poet. And then you go ahead and write about your name right up front, like, okay, motherfuckers, I know it has sex in it. Let's talk about that and just get this out of the way. Yeah, that's so funny. I have never, I'm thrilled that you said that because usually the feedback is like, there's not a lot of career fields that sex hour can thrive in. Thus, my siblings and I are all military because it's like, you know. It is It is a good military name. Yeah, yeah it is definitely. Did you, uh, I used to play that game with myself, like sometimes where I'd be like, waiting in a chow hall line or something, especially early on when I was junior enlisted. And I saw names, I, I guess you would see them in civilian, in the civilian world if everybody wore name tags, but because you don't in the military, you just end up seeing the coolest names all the time. I thought yeah, the strangest names. Yeah. Right. And you're That's like, Oh my God, I can't believe somebody's named that. It's not that bad. There's some pretty rough ones out there. I remember being, you know, whatever age it is in school where you learn like, you know, people that came to America, their last name was their employment, like blacksmith, you know, I'm like seventh grade and I'm like, holy shit, what did my ancestors (laughs) do? But it's German. It's not literal. I mean, it's not the sex version of English. Sex in German is six. But um, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of jokes. I think I had a lot of jokes growing up, but in the army, people were kind of intimidated by it. It's It's a good army name. Yeah, it actually. I mean, I like I could see for a civilian how they go, oh, there's sex in it. Or when you're in kindergarten, be like, oh, it's got sex in it. But like as an adult, it's actually like it's got good syncopation or something. It it sounds impressive. It's a quick way to make people laugh um, on a first impression, which has served me well. Um, Yeah, a lot of people in the army would just call me by my rank because they were like, I'm not touching that. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know if this is a joke. Are you really? Oh, yeah. People are scared. That's so weird. Wow. All right. Bizarre. I would have, I would have taken every opportunity to say like, Hey, sex hours coming in the room, get your yeah. shit together. Yeah. You know, like it just says something officious about it. I don't know. I, I, I dig it, but I do really see that for, for writing and for poetry. Like there's um, yeah, it's got, it's got some depth to it or something. So I'm glad to hear that. Cause I, I've, I've always wondered if I should have a PG 13. Uh, <laughs> you know, name well, for writing I, I just like that you addressed it like early on in your book you're like okay here's a poem all about my last name and i was like yeah. okay she's clearly you know done multiple laps uh, on this name and like people have you probably heard every joke seen every iteration of it and all that i was like wow that's amazing i did not have that uh that yeah. wasn't that definitely wasn't my take um but it is a name that just stands out I should do another poem that's like all the jokes I've heard because some of them are pretty funny or clever. Really? Yeah. Anything uh, that comes to mind? Well, when I was a kid, it was because it's pronounced sex hour. Uh-huh. Uh, so when I was a kid, it was just like, you know, oh, you have sex every hour, like stuff like that. But then I remember I was checking into a yoga class one time and the woman checking me in was like, how do you say your name? And I was like, sex hour. And she goes like, oh, a sexy dinosaur. And I was like, holy huh? shit, hour. Yeah, dinosaur. I never saw that before. 
or Sig Sauer. I get that in Arnold. Sig Sauer. Sig Sauer, I could see. Yeah, that's clever. That's I could see that. I didn't see any of that. Those are other people showing me that my name. Right, right, right. But you can totally take credit for it. I mean, you have the yeah, name. Now. So, yeah, yeah. Maybe now that I'm like not on active duty, I'll lean into that Sig Sauer. Like, yeah, yeah. Disgruntled veteran vibe. Yeah, well, a veteran influencer vibe, right? Yeah, yeah it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here's my thing. Yeah, this is what I'll I do. Me. I'm Sig Sauer now. <laughs> so, my what was interesting to me about your book is that, um, I felt like it was, I mean, this sounds kind of obvious, but with a lot of poets and a lot of writers, even you can't always trace the autobiographical narrative the way you could with yours. It looked like yours was written or organized at least almost chronologically. Was that, is that generally true? Well, um, I actually submitted the manuscript in chronological order. Um, and this is a, I think a fun thing to discuss, um, with writers because I wrote it chronologically and I put it together chronologically. And then when I went through the editing process, um, the editor, Jessica Danger, had this feedback for me that we should play with the poetry in order to create the sense of narrative yeah. for the reader. So I think people who don't know me, it we you know, like um, Tim O'Brien has that great Things chapter. I care. About, oh, yeah. He talks about like writing nonfiction as fiction in order to get the recipient to perceive it how you experienced it. Yeah. Um, so actually I have to give my editor total credit for putting that in the order it's in so that it felt more chronological to the reader. Um, so it's, it's roughly chronological. Some of the travel poems, we sort of moved to the back to create this arc of, you know, post army. Yep. Well, it's like an emotional narrative. It's like almost emotionally chronological. It's kind of like your emotions go in that arc. Um, yes. And obviously the the dated ones are in order. And then, you know, my daughter's arrival. So all the poems about her are, you know, that's definitely in order. It was, uh, yeah, it was really interesting. I, I, so let me jump right to my, what I loved most about the poems, because that's a pretty good place to start. <laughs> Which is rampant compliments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, of course, I leave myself nowhere to go after I say all this, but, uh, but nonetheless. So the thing I really loved is that you have, you have killer last lines. Mm. It's like every one of your poems builds to a point and you have either like, so, okay, sorry. Let me, let me give some context to this compliment. So um, many, many, many years and life, lifetimes ago, uh, now about 21 years ago when I was doing standup, uh, you learned that the three ways you can tell a joke is compare, contrast, um, exaggeration or misdirection. Yeah. And that's where your punchlines come from. Your poems are not generally funny, but you do have a comic sense of misdirection where it, it's not head spinning misdirection where you're like, where the hell did that come from? But it is, um, it's a really nice twist almost at the end of so many of the poems. And I'll read you a couple that just kind of stood out to me. And, um, but, but I mean, it, I, and they were naturally evolving. They weren't, they weren't inorganic, but I thought that you don't see that in a lot of poets. It seems like, and, and maybe I'm self-critiquing a little bit, but it always seems like when you're, when one writes poetry, it's kind of like, Hey, this is the emotional state I'm in and I'm going to stay in here for pretty much every line. I'm just going to explore what I've already set up initially. Yours, your poetry seems to travel. You seem to have 
not a beginning, middle, and end necessarily, although there is that sometimes, but it does build to a bit of a climax and a bit of a twist. And um, now, I'm, of course, I'm going to struggle to find the exact bookmarked ones that I put in here. But uh, so the one in, well, let's start with your one on your name. Uh, you, well, first, I want to start with actually the middle verse. So I'm kind of cheating a little bit on this, but I love this. I love that what you said in the middle verse. When he said, in uniform, I watched every person that shook my hand, dragged their eyes across my name, Tate. I'm fluent in what their eyes are hiding. Everyone flinches. Yeah. That everyone flinches is, is great. I mean, it's just a great little twist. It's a great exploration of that, that you know, you're not staying in the same emotional place. And you do that throughout. And I feel like I'm filibustering a lot on this point, but it's mostly because I'm not finding <laughs> the ones that I'd bookmarked for yeah. it. But well, so I'll, I'll get your reaction on it. But have you gotten that, that feedback before on your work? Um, I have not gotten that feedback before. I mean, I'm still pretty fresh at putting my poetry out there. So all the feedback is new in a good way. Um, I'm very much a student of the art form and I'm learning a lot of, you know, learning and observing other artists out there and the ways that they do things. But I think the way that I often come to a poem is I am sorting out how I feel about something. And so, you know, like when certain feelings or situations are kind of messy and sticky, I will word vomit mm. how, it, how it feels. Sometimes it's, you know, a descript, a direct description of what I'm feeling. And sometimes it's like, I see a metaphor, you know, like we had a, we had a icy snowstorm here this weekend and it like rained and all of the rain froze and a lot of the trees uh, were burdened with the ice and like bending over. And we had tons of trees fall down and lots of branches like falling down from the ice, from being burdened with ice. And I was like, I feel that, like I feel mother nature is pruning herself and it's like mm -hmm. violent and, it, but it's just one night, all the weak branches are trimmed down. And so I don't exactly know what, that makes me feel, but I'm going to write about that and, and see where it goes and see where it goes. Yeah. So I wonder if, I wonder if that tendency toward a punchline is just me sorting it out as I go. I, I, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm, I'm going to read a couple of these to you, but um, because I found the, th the three that originally caught my eye, your poem war stories, mm -hmm. um, which is short. So I'll just read the whole thing. Um, I could tell my birth story every day. Amongst mothers, it's the war story that never gets old. It's just a great, this is a great flip. It's, I, I just love that. I, and I want to read um, the last line of the, your, uh, I guess, flagship poem, Poppies. Mm. Um, when you said, I pray the dead are generous with their symbols. I love that. It was, it was just a great, it was a great line. And the last one, um, was just had it and then i lost it sorry um here we go failure your poem failure mm. contradicting what i originally thought all my sins bring me closer to god i mean those are ones that like you can almost i i, I think any number of instagram people would just go yeah let me take that and use that in my profile like yeah, it's just yeah. great um almost bumper sticker sized uh statements that capture a of huge concept or, or represent a really nice change of pace from the rest of the poem. Um, so that makes sense that that's kind of a natural evolution of just you working out whatever the subject matter is 
and finding that natural conclusion that you make from it. I think it's interesting. I, I definitely have read a lot of poets that write longer poems, but for whatever reason, if I have, if I need more real estate for something, it'll turn into something that's not a poem. For whatever reason, mm. I feel po- poetry for me is is the succinctness of capturing something in in this short blip. Um, which again, there's like, I mean, I literally have you know poems that are entire books on my bookshelf, and somebody wrote yeah. a whole book that's a poem, and it's amazing. Um, maybe I'll figure out how to do that one day. But at this yeah. point. Yeah, that just seems to be the nature of how poems come out of me. Well, you also had that um, every place I've peed, which was hilarious and <laughs> awesome, and yeah. which was definitely—I mean, it wasn't an epic poem, but it was definitely a longer and more prose-filled poem that really worked and, and was a nice change of pace. I thought in the book that was one of that's one of my favorites, not because I think the the poem itself or whatever it is, the blurb is that good, but because there's so many stories in there and I, I don't know why, but I've always had this tendency, like as a female veteran, like to sort of push people's buttons a little bit, not, not um, necessarily pushing like a feminine agenda, but just amongst people sort of reminding them that like being a soldier is gross and can be dirty and participated in that mess. And so, you know, instead of telling a violent story, it's like, let me tell you about this crazy time where I had to like pull over and shit on the side of the road or, you know, peeing in a Gatorade bottle or, you know, like being on an infill and not wanting to ask anybody to stop. So I just peed my pants because I was sweaty and nobody would know the difference. Um, I've told those stories at parties like my whole life because it's funny and it makes people laugh and it right. you know, grosses them out. And one day I just started listing down all the silliest places that I've peed. And I was like, I think I'm, I think I'm going to share this with the world. Well, it's like a high concept poem. It's like a poem poem that just the concept alone is so awesome. Um, I mean, I'm sure to those listening that haven't read the poem yet, it's like, I'm sure there's a bit of them that's going, should I want to read that? Like places, you know, that's just a great concept of something that, that um, where it does the concept itself does so much of the lift for you. Um, that probably be a great memoir title. <laughs> that is true too. Well, that's like a, what was it? Uh, I hope they serve beer in hell. You know, this is like all the places I peed. And like yeah. it, it, it's a natural evolution of the story from that. Yeah. So let's let's. Um, I, I feel kind of funny asking you about your personal story because I feel like reading the book. Um, it is incredibly unpretentious writing and incredibly autobiographical. So I feel like you already put so much of yourself out there. It's almost redundant. I feel like to ask you about some stuff, but I do want to ask you about it. And I hope it doesn't diminish kind of the mystery of some of the words where, you know, you you know, some of the poems I read, I'm like, Oh, I think it's about this, but it also might be about this. Um, So I don't want to totally eliminate that mystery for myself or anybody else, but I, but I can't help but ask about um, kind of how you got here. So you were an army brat growing Mm -hmm. up, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, was it 14 bases that you grew up on that you spent your childhood? Yeah, that's a rough, a rough count. I'd say 14 houses. Okay. um, Because we lived in Germany for six years and, you know, moved a couple of times while we were there. Where were you in Germany? Oh, man, I was young. Um, Okay. So I don't remember any of the bases, but we lived in. 
Mainz and Wiesbaden and Hanau, I think. Okay. I think my, if my mom listens to this, she'll, she'll correct me. She'll know. Um, when did you start writing? Was it, uh, and, and this is just my, I'm just going to throw this out here as my, uh, armchair psychiatrist, uh, <laughs> guess, was it a coping mechanism early on to go, Oh yeah. Hey, I want to journal and I want a diary and I want to start recording things or was it a totally different evolution into becoming a writer? Um, as long as I can remember, I've written, um, I had journals and diaries when I was very young, but I think it, it skewed towards poetry pretty early on. I, I didn't really write like journal entries of my experiences, but I think, I, I think being an army brat and moving a lot, um, you know, for the, there's many people who can relate to that experience, whether just being an army brat or moving for any other reason, um, you know, I was felt pretty lonely and disconnected from a lot of the places I ended up in. I was the new kid very often. And so writing was a, was a safe place to sort through emotions that I was feeling if I didn't have any other way to express them. So for as long as I can remember, I've been doing that. And I think, I think around puberty, whenever I started to really appreciate how the things I was reading affected me is when I probably thought, oh, I think I want to write. Like, I think I want to do this too. Um, but I, I never, I mean, gosh, it took, it's taken quite a while for me to like accept that that's what I want. I think mm. I assumed I wasn't good enough. You know, a lot of people have that narrative of like, there's no way I'd be good enough. There's no way I can make enough money. So might as well just keep this as a hobby or not tell anyone about it. Um, I actually asked my mom recently, I was like, mom, do you remember like when I started to get weird about writing and books? And, stuff? <laughs> and she remembers uh, like maybe whatever, maybe around like the first or second grade, a teacher had, I had a homework assignment to write down how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and apparently I got super into it uh, and wrote very elaborate, intimate details on how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I got such praise from my teacher that my mom thinks that's when I was sold on it. Oh, that's interesting. So would you remember when you started actually doing poetry? Was that, a, was that a pretty, was that early on or did that kind of wait well, till your teenage years? You know, the best part is I still have a lot of those journals from when I was real little, like, you know, rough handwriting. Little. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah. And um, it, I feel like it was, you know, it might've just been real emo in the beginning and that feels sure. pathetic to me now, but I think it always, I think it always kind of skewed poetic. Why? Were you, were you reading a lot of poetry or were you just listening to like Morrissey and the Smiths a lot? I mean, where, where did that all come from? <laughs> um. So yeah, I I would say the first my first exposure to poetry was um, Psalms in the Bible and Shel Silverstein, and both of those I read pretty young. Um, and I remember as a kid, I mean, we went to church and I had exposure to the whole Bible, but I remember as a kid just thinking the Psalms were super cool and super like made me feel things, and they felt, you know, like. I felt more connection with that part of scripture mm. and then Shel Silverstein, even Dr. Seuss, you know, a lot of Dr. Seuss's books yeah. had, had that kind of rhythm to them. Um, 
Yeah. So I think that's probably where that came from. Probably my first exposure to any kind of literature was a little bit poetic. Did you find over the years of your childhood, as you were moving from base to base, did you find that you were also ingesting a steady stream of poetry or that you sought it out? Or was it just other writers in general? Or were you not even reading that much? I've always read a lot. Um, I mean, well, I should say growing up, I read a lot. I think I went through some time in the army where I only read like manuals and emails, but um, uh, I don't know. I remember, you know, like I was really into Emily Dickinson in high school because I went to high school in Massachusetts and her home was 20, 30 minutes Mm -hmm. away. So I felt like a connection to that like emo recluse poet vibe but um at some point I got more into to fantasy genre Mm -hmm. versus poetry um I also I think music at some point what I got out of poetry came from music like I I just a couple weeks ago listened to Jewel the Jewel podcast with Joe Rogan and I was like holy shit I remember when I was like 10 years old I was super into Jewel I listened to her music and then she put out a poetry book and I was like, Oh my God, this is the greatest shit ever. Yeah. And I had totally forgotten that I had gone through that phase. Have you gone back and read all, all your writing or, or at least glanced through it? I mean, not poured over it, but have you like gone through and gone, Hey, this is me in second grade. Now this is me in eighth yeah. grade. Now, have, you, have you done that? Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> what do it's, you, it's oh, just, so, it's so young, you know, it's so yeah. the concerns of a second grader, Sure. Um, it's, you know, it's very much being lonely and wanting other kids to like me and, you know, figuring out how I felt about boys. That was a heavy, heavy content, which I guess is still probably heavy content in my writing. Um, yeah. Writing about people and relationships. I think that's probably where it even started and it's still kind of there. Did it give you more clarity when you were doing, when you continue to do writing now, were you like, huh, I can kind of make sense of who I was at that age a little bit more, maybe capture some of those feelings better now because you've read where you were at then and it kind of reminded you, oh yeah, this is my sense memory of what that was like. And now I can kind of unthread that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, you know, even in the process of putting this book together, um, there's the, you know, the, my friend Ashley that was killed, who's the, you know, the dated poems that was 10 years ago. And looking also a lot of the writing has spanned you know a decade um looking back and even just through the editing process like kind of clarifying what I was trying to say and and certainly some things I think feel raw and fresh and you want to leave them untouched but definitely there have been poems that have been re-edited many times to clarify a feeling so let's talk about your your process uh, a little bit when you sent the manuscript in, so before you actually had an editor and were actually working, um, you know, to get it ready for publication, how how edited were the poems? How much do you generally edit? Not not much. Um, I that's actually been a huge learning point for me over the last two years. Um, I actually took a writing class about two years ago. That um, it was like right when the when COVID came and things were shutting down, um, dead reckoning put out, it was like the first people to sign up, here's a writing class, like on Saturdays. 
Um, and it was all, I think it was mostly veterans, actually. I'm not sure if everybody was a veteran, but it was mostly mm-hmm. veterans. And it was, I think it was called Writing the War. We read a bunch of military books and and we did some writing activities together. And um, I think I kind of had this myth in my head. And I think this happens in a lot of things. The idea of like talent, innate talent versus discipline and hard work. And I had this narrative that like, I wasn't, my writing just wasn't effortlessly good enough. So it wasn't mm-hmm. worth putting any time or effort into it. It certainly wasn't worth sharing with anyone. Um, but being willing to have, you know, the shitty first draft and then being being able to be ruthless with yourself and look at it and go through it and fuck it up and find what's good and be able to take like one sentence out of 10 pages and then turn that into something magical. Um, that's not something I've ever been good at doing in the past. Um, so the process of most of the poems in the manuscript were not very edited, but we did a lot of editing with, you know, Jessica and DRC. And I think they became such better pieces of work. And it's such a humbling lesson to be willing to edit and work on your stuff and not just judge it at face value. Considering that, as you said, so often you're working through an emotion or a memory or, or a feeling and then getting to that conclusion, how often did you find that uh, the poem goes in a different direction from what you had initially thought, like in subsequent drafts and all that? Do you find that very often or really are you are your first drafts generally what it's going to end up being enough that you really don't have to go, you know, any, there's might be some stylistic edits or something like that, but you're, as far as the, the point you're making or the conclusion you're reaching um, through your writing process, do you find that's pretty locked in? I, I edit more now, like the more I've learned and the more I've grown, the more I let myself word vomit and then come back to it and edit and clarify. Um, I think a lot of times what happens is like, so the, the title poem poppies is one of my favorites in the book. And the original version of that poem is totally different. Oh. And I really, and actually I remember, cause I remember talking to Jessica, the editor and being like, I know what I'm trying to say here, but it's not coming out. And so I, there's a story behind the poem and I just told her the whole story. She gave me like a little bit of a writing exercise to work through it. And I probably wrote a, you know, I wrote a couple of versions of that. Um, And I think that's why it's my favorite because I know a lot of work went into clarifying that Mm -hmm. experience Yeah. um, and trying to capture that feeling that I wasn't able to capture, you know, with multiple attempts. Um, but a lot of times what'll happen too is more poems will come out of one. So I'm working on one and just sort of getting it all out. And then when I look at it, I'm like, actually, this is a separate baby and this is a separate baby. And then it cleans it up a little bit. You said before that you're, you're a student of the genre that you, that you, you know, try to really um, learn the craft of poetry. How? What do you do you do? Are you taking classes? Do you just read a lot of poetry? What do you find to be effective for you to improve? Um, that way? I have I've taken some classes. Um, certainly would love to take more. I know I would benefit from more. Um, I'm I'm lucky to have other friends that are interested in it. Um, so we have great conversation. I but I'm reading is really the most accessible form of knowledge. Um, <clears throat> I'm like trying to keep up with all the books that DRC puts out. Cause right. I'm, I'm always, yeah, I've got all their books that I'm working through. 
Um, and honestly, Instagram has been a great source yeah. of me being introduced to new writers because I think I've got a lot of classics and well-known poets, but I love, you know, Dead Reckoning will share somebody or a friend of mine will share somebody and I'll discover this modern poet who's still living and still producing work and right. be consistently inspired by them. Do you find yourself gravitating towards other veteran writers or do you make a point of steering towards civilians is the divide. Am I the first person to even like make you conscious of the divide and how you choose to, or who you choose to read? Um, I don't think that I've ever, hmm, I don't really consciously make a divide. Um, I, I'd say for the most part, the poetry I read is not by veterans. I think just mm -hmm. from what I get exposed to, I've made the effort to read veterans because of Dead Reckoning putting out so much. And they've introduced me to, you know, others that I didn't even know about. Um, <clears throat> that writing class I took with them, I learned about veteran writers that I'd never even heard of. And now that I'm not on active duty, um, I I sort of appreciate more that, that little click of veteran writers across history. I've appreciated them more and I've put more effort. I think, I don't know, when I was on active duty, I think I just didn't have the emotional capacity to deep dive into some war books. So now, that I, yeah. now that I can, I'm, I love it. I mean, I, I shouldn't say I love it because there are like real history nerds out there that love it. I don't love it like that, but I appreciate right. it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I was going to ask you about that because that's something um, I know I talked about that Luke, with Luke Ryan when he was on the show. Um, what was your writing like when you were on active duty? Did you, were you on a willful hiatus? Did you find that, oh, I do do it, but I got to be on, on leave and it's got to, I've got to have some, some breath around it. Or did you find that you were like consciously like, uh, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Like, yeah, what was your experience with it? I, I'm embarrassed to admit it now, but I think, you know, I think I need to be honest for honesty's sake. I really honestly believed that the part of me that loved to read and write was in direct conflict with what made me a good soldier. <clears throat> and so I actively suppressed, you know, emotions and, and I felt like a lot of the things I liked to read made me feel emotions. And so it was this weird, I still read, I mean, I feel, I know I, there's a lot of like leadership books and army books and things that I like kind of had to read. And I would definitely at some point I still read, you know, the occasional like fantasy or sci-fi book or, you know, important book that would come out that would be significant to read. Um, <clears throat> but I really suppressed that part of myself. That's awesome that you said that. Um, I agree. And that makes complete sense to me. And I think that probably resonates with a lot of people. Um, I, I, in talking to different veteran writers it doesn't seem like everyone's had that experience and that amazes me that everyone doesn't i don't because i i do think that that's really hard to reconcile um such abject creativity and introspection with a job that has life and death stakes and that you kind of need to be on point and you really can't take those moments of introspection um i think it was a process over a couple of years <clears throat> definitely there's been a couple of things that have I guess, opened my mind to this, but <clears throat> one of them was while I was still in, I read um, what it's like to go to war by Carl Marlantes. And um, 
you know, he just kind of, he opened my mind to the need for warriors to have a spiritual component. I already had that, but I didn't know how to reconcile that with what I was trained um, to be. I definitely didn't know how to integrate that into like my leadership style. So he gave me a lot of perspective and language around that. And I think that's probably where the journey started. And and I'm really fortunate. The last couple of years I was in, my MOS was PSYOP, Psychological Operations. And I was on a lot of really great teams that wanted people to be creative. And we had to come up with creative solutions to wacky problems. And so there was a lot more uh, education and intelligence and not to bash like the regular army at by any means. No, no, no. I, I get what you mean. Yeah. Um, cause no, I, I mean, I know like our soldiers are very intelligent, but we, I was in these, these spaces where people were like, no, I want you to be creative. I want you to tell me something insane and then see if we can do it. And so I felt really affirmed at, you know, giving that part of myself more voice, um, and then once I left active duty, I was like, holy shit, I have a lot I want to say and do and think and feel that I've just been ignoring for years. This is a career, isn't it? The military? Or writing. 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 <laughs> um, I would love to make a living from writing. I haven't figured that out yet. Of course, because writing's a brutally difficult thing to make any money in. But um, and certainly money to sustain yourself. But uh, I I ask that only because um, this is a question I've asked a couple of people that have been on the show. But did you ever have a sense when you were deployed that if anything happened to you downrange, I mean, obviously that'd be bad for a lot of reasons. But it would also be bad because you you just feel like. There's stories or something, even if you don't know the form it's going to take, that just wouldn't get out and you would be hampered and incomplete in some way mm. if something were to happen. Um, to be honest, no. I think I okay. have that feeling more now <clears throat> that um, now I feel more of like the stories that are in me that I want to give voice to. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I know this is kind of, I don't know if this is like professional to say, but when I was young and deploying frequently, I thought that if I was killed, that it would give my life profound meaning for eternity. And I had a lot of peace with that. So let's talk about your warrior journey then. Um, since that is the big differentiator, obviously, of, 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 you know, talking to veteran artists. So was it a foregone conclusion that you were going to go in the military coming from a military family? No, um, I'm the oldest. <clears throat> oh, I'm the oldest of four. And at this point, all of my siblings are, have, have joined as well. Um, <clears throat> it's a lot uh, of sex hours in the military. There are. Yeah. Uh, of them are my family. <laughs> um, there's a couple that are not, which okay. I haven't yet. But you know, it's weird because I think, in hindsight, I'm not sure what else I would have done. But I, because I, you know, I just I traveled so much growing up, and I lived overseas, and I saw my dad. My dad went to the Gulf War when I was four years old. Um, <clears throat> you know, I played on army bases, and 
you know, he flew helicopters and he switched to fixed wing and like so much exposure to the military life that it makes so much sense. But I really, I really felt that I was like a super emotional, sensitive kid. Mm. And I didn't think that I could thrive in the military. Um, And a couple of different things happened. I got introduced to West Point in school and I have a little bit of a sadistic personality. If someone's like, it's too hard. You can't do it. Then I'm like, well, I guess I got to fucking do it now to show you that. I So it started off as a joke um, in a history class where they were reading off all these generals that had been to West Point. And I was just a kid talking shit like, well, I'm going to go to West Point. It's not that hard. And then uh, 9-11 happened my freshman year of high school. Um, And there was this weird time where my, my dad was teaching ROTC. And, um, you know, he had deployed a long time ago and he, you know, asked the army to be moved to a deploying unit because he felt called to do that and they wouldn't release him. They said that what he was doing in ROTC at the time was, was more important, was more important use of, of him as a, as an officer. And, um, but I remember that time at home and that sense of like, this this significant historical event has happened and my dad's response to it being, well, I need to go be there and help. And um, there's a lot of talking shit that can be said about military brats, but I think for somehow my dad instilled in all of us this need of like, if there's trouble, we're going to be the ones to help. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it was kind of like a slow slide into, okay, like I'm going to, I'm going to figure out, I didn't know what I was going to do initially if I would do ROTC or an academy or, you know, just help for a little bit or make it a career. I didn't have any aspirations at that time. Um, but when I became a senior, I applied to West Point and I got in early enough that I didn't even apply to any other school. Was your dad a West Pointer? No, he was a ROTC grad. Okay. Okay. So that it's it's an interesting dynamic um to be, I think, a military family member when 9-11 happens. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I never thought of this before until you said it, but was it a, do you think if 9-11 had never happened that you would have probably never joined the military and you would probably gone, yeah, that kind of sucked, or that was weird, or that I was growing up on all these bases, but you wouldn't have had a sense of where the rubber meets the road in the military experience and like really seen the teeth come out in the military experience? Maybe. I I think there was maybe always a shot that I would. Um, To be honest, I think, you know, my parents had four kids on an army salary. And I think there was a level of like, once we started to get older, I was like, oh shit, how are we going to pay for college? So I think ROTC could have wooed me already, but um, I don't know. I've only ever served in a wartime military. So I don't know what it feels like to not have that be the the end state or the reality. Um, but I don't know. Who were you in high school? Were you a jock? Were you a emo kid? Where, 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 where were you? I was all of the things. I went to a small high school. So most significantly, I was a band kid. I played the flute and the piccolo. <clears throat> and I played the piccolo at West Point too in the spirit band. Really? Oh, love, no kidding. Wow. Love band kids. But at my high school, it was so small. Everybody did everything. So I played sports and I was in the band. I think one year I was class president. I was in Spanish club. I did all the things. I did all the things. And 
did you uh what was your initial mos because you couldn't branch psyop coming right out of west point right i was an mp military police. okay how'd you like it um i had a great experience um i know it's a small branch and a lot of people have you know their bone to pick with military police um when i was when i was gosh i don't even know if i was a lieutenant or if i was a cadet or not where at some point a reporter has quoted me as saying that mp is the women's infantry uh so that's like in print on the internet so i got a lot of shit for saying that but i really believed it like when i was a west when i was well, it was west, true it was true for a long yeah. time that's right yeah he, when we were learning about the branches, it was like, if you're not going to be a pilot, you know, like when you're a kid and you think of the military, you're not thinking like gender roles. You're thinking there's bad guys and we kill bad guys. And some people kill bad guys with tanks and some people kill bad guys with guns and some people kill bad guys with airplanes or helicopters. So that I, I still had a hard time learning. Like when you're a cadet, you, you get some hands-on experience, but you don't really understand the reality of what all the MOSs do. Right. So I basically felt like I had to choose between an engineer and MP if I wanted to, you know, get my hands dirty. Um, and MP is what I got. So let's talk about, um, the, the gender part of your experience. you you dedicate the book um, to all the women who held me together in love. So there's definitely a sense of, um, the sisterhood, right. That kind of goes throughout the book yet. I mean, it didn't seem to me that, you know, it was hard. It was an exclusively, you know, feminine leaning book in any way. It was just, you know, that was the, that was your experience. Why was that important to you as a dedication? Um, what stood out about it? Was it the specific people that you you talked about that you know that you've lost that were female? Was it? Um, will you just talk about what what other women in the military meant to you and why it was worthy of a dedication? I it, the you know the irony of we opened this up talking about being an army brat and moving a lot and being very lonely. I think for a long time. I'm very good at making friends, but I'm not very good at having like a deep, intimate connection with people mm. because growing mm. up, there was so much transience. Um, <clears throat> and I carried that over into the military of like, I can be charismatic and I can make friends with people, but there's always a little bit of a distance. Um, and there's also quite a lot of turnover and moving around. Um, but I had this, and, and, I, and I think for every person who serves, it's different. I don't think it's a uniquely female experience, um, but I can obviously only speak to that component. I think <clears throat> a lot of women feel like they have to take on a certain personality mm -hmm. when they're the only woman around. For the first couple of years I was in, I was always the only woman in my battalion, or not my battalion, but like platoon company level. There was frequently only me and maybe a handful of other women anywhere. <clears throat> or like my first deployment, it was like I had two other female soldiers in my platoon, but that that was it for the entire fob. Right. Um, so always a lot of you know focus and attention on like how we behave and act. But um, I had this assignment about three years in um, where a bunch of women were recruited to do uh, a CST mission, 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. The I, I, I am, but you can explain it to people because others well, may not. So the details are kind of irrelevant. Um, but you know, special operations wanted women to come along on missions to interact with Afghan women. <clears throat> the point of it is that they had like a selection and it was, I want to say, I don't know how many women there were like hundreds of women that applied, you know, maybe like so many got invited. And then we had this selection for a couple of days and it was, I never seen that many women in uniform yeah. in place. And it was like a joke. It's always been this joke. Cause you can imagine like going to the gym and there's like a hundred women in uniform. Everyone's like, what is happening right now? Um, people are always like, are you guys nurses? Is like a nurse convention? What's happening? Um, but it, I just, I never met so many other people like me. Um, and we're all super different. We're all super different, different States, different upbringings, different MOSs, super different, but we all had this like fire and passion. We all joined the military because we wanted fucking killed bad guys right and right. and it was i know that's such a silly thing to say but i don't have any other better language for it like we didn't there's this idea that like i you know men that i've worked with like what do you why do you think i joined do you think i joined because i wanted to do something different than why you wanted to join right right um and so i had this amazing experience where i met a bunch of women and of course a smaller group of us deployed together. Um, and after that deployment, we all went back to our basic branches initially and, um, you know, different bases all over the country. I remember getting that back. That deployment was tough because obviously we lost people, but it was also tough because we were an attachment. We were an enabler. Mm -hmm. So we came from one place, trained up, did this deployment, and then we got sent home. So you didn't come home with your unit. Um, you went back to be with a unit that had not experienced any of the things you had. It was super isolating. And I, I remember I got back and I got thrown right into command. They were like, oh my God, we're so glad you're back. Please take command of this unit. Yeah. <clears throat> um, even though you seem kind of fucked up and not in the best headspace. <laughs> so was that in the OER? Is that where they said that? Yeah, yeah. 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 You're a little fucked up. You're not in the right headspace, but yeah. Well, go ahead. They're, you know, the home unit, their mentality was you've been gone for a year fucking off. So right. now we need you to get back to work. And I'm like, that's not fair. <laughs> but it, right. you know, I, I love command. So I'm not knocking that experience. But um, all of my girlfriends and I, we like quickly realized that we were the only other people who had experienced this thing together. And so from month one, we put a lot of effort in keeping our friendships together. And, you know, life happens. People mm. get married and have kids and move and some, you know, some friendships come and go, but I, you know, over 10, 11 years have just had the most rewarding, deep, loving friendships with, and these women that I'm friends with, like they're real people, you know, like they're flawed and we've made shit decisions and people have, you know, we've hurt each other and people have lost relationships and lost children. And we just, we've been doing life together. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very blessed in a lot of ways, but the reason I dedicated this book is like this, this is my family. This is an integral part of who I am. I, I cannot imagine doing life without this sisterhood that I have. Were you the OIC of the CST that you were on or were there, were, in other words, were these friends officers? Were they enlisted? Was it both? Both. both. Okay. How did you, so I'm interested in that and I, I don't want to, um, 
presume because I'm I'm talking out of turn, but uh, you know, I had I've had Dex on and I've had Lonnie Hankins on, and um, you know, as enlisted females, it was interesting to me that they talked about their experiences having a lot of difficulties with other females, and they were constantly like, "Oh yeah, our experience was was great when we were around guys because then we just got treated like one of the guys, and yes, we were a little different." But we kind of knew where everything stood, and then we'd get with other girls, and we'd get catty, and it would, you know things would devolve from there. But that wasn't your experience at all, and your experience well, was much more reinforcing, right? I've had that experience, and and I will and I will say that you know after that deployment, I didn't work with those women ever again. So I was mm. still in units. I mean, when I went psyop, I think there was more women. Well, actually, I don't know, like statistically the data on PSYOP versus the MP core, but <clears throat> I always have been in the minority as a female. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I have had those experiences and, you know, I'm, and I have to admit, I probably contributed to that kind of tension when I was younger. I think I read, I'm trying to remember the book where I read this. Um, I'm forgetting the author's name, but there's a book that came out a long time ago called Lean In. And yeah. it's a, a Carol woman. Sandberg. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like mm -hmm. a Facebook CEO or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is like before everyone hated Facebook before right. everyone. Was right. Um, she wrote about, and I think this applies to a lot of things. It's like, it's the concept of scarcity. If you believe a resource is scarce, then you're going to compete for it. And this, and I don't think it's, you know, intentional or taught to us, you know, deliberately, but there's this vibe of, only one woman can succeed or only one kind of woman can succeed. So automatically we are competitive with each other. And it was really living through making these friends with these women and, and how experiencing how, even though we are different, different ranks, different MOSs, certainly very strong, different opinions on things, but having that love and support brought us all up and made our lives better uh, I, I became the complete opposite where I used to feel like I had to be like the strongest and the fastest and like, you know, mm -hmm. fuck a chick who makes me, who makes my gender look weak. I hate saying that. Like, I feel so horrible that I, even no, thought right. thoughts, right. but you know, 21, 22 year old Amy, I was also like a little bit chubby when I went to West Point. So I had like a chip on my shoulder about that, which doesn't help. But, um, the older I got, the more I was like, we can all succeed. And, all, and also like a lot of times we're all on the same team. So we want this team to succeed. So I want you to succeed. Um, I had to really live through that to be wisened to it. Um, and now the, the job I have in the reserves, I, I teach. Um, they're not young soldiers. They're mostly um, captains that are new to the PSYOP branch. I don't get, a, I get a little bit of FaceTime with them because I'm just in the reserves, but I, they're so much more mature than I was at that age. Oh. Um, but yeah, I don't see, I don't, I don't see that tension in them uh, as much as I did when I was younger. I, 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 let me be clear about why I'm even bringing it up. Cause um, I, obviously, I mean, there's, you know, tons of nuance to that whole subject um, yep. and, and to the, uh, and, to any interpersonal relationships in the military, I think. Sure. But the reason I, I bring it up is because, again, I, I'm asking, not not suggesting, but I just wonder how much that does contribute to a person having to shut themselves off from 
that more intuitive, creative mm-hmm. side in many respects to go, hey, I, I got to be about this because I do. I don't feel like people have my back, or I'm now supported in this realm. But my creds, my my uh, bona fides being in this community is my PT, my shooting, how I act out there, and I can't afford any lapse, so I can't indulge you know, my creative self too much, um, especially outside the left, right limits of my job. I'm, I'm hypothesizing here. Is, is any of that relevant or was that not the case? Yeah, there's such a, I mean, I, I don't, I certainly don't have the answer, but there's, there's something, the way that we break soldiers down to toughen them up in the beginning you know, when, and we, and we, we want to provide these crucible experiences that, that mm-hmm. cause people to grow and challenge themselves and, and be pushed to be on what they thought they were capable of while also balancing this idea that in order for us to be cohesive and be creative and be adaptable, um, there has to be like a certain level of safety, not necessarily safety from, you know, exterior threat, but safety within your team. You know, and I don't know if that's something that is balanced with time. Like there's a point in time in training for creativity and taking risks. And there's a point in time for just doing what needs to be done. Um, I don't have the answer for that, but I definitely have struggled at different points in my career with just, you know, I mean, I, and actually I think going through CST selection was a big point of growth for me. Cause at that point I thought the only, I thought the definition of being successful as a soldier, but certainly as like a five foot two or a five foot zero female was I needed to be fast. I needed to be stronger. I needed to like talk shit and I needed to be rough. I needed to be constantly proving to you that I could hang and going through that selection process, other skill sets were tested. Um, and I realized, okay, so I'm, I've been faster at points in my life. I'm not super fast anymore, but there was a time where I was like, okay, speed, but like, I'm never going to be the biggest. I'm probably never going to be the fastest, but I realized I'm, I can be clever. Um, I'm very confident. I'm good public speaking. Um, and I found myself on teams where they were like, oh man, that was a great idea. Like, I'm so glad you're here and that you could see that and help us figure this out. Like, as long as you're meeting I mean, I hate to call it the minimum because it's obviously not really the minimum. Sure. sure. As long as you can get through the door with your physical attributes of being a soldier, those other aspects that I brought to the table were really valued. And I and I wonder too, because I didn't feel that way as an MP. Like as an MP, I felt like I was always struggling to prove myself physically. Mm. But once I went PSYOP, it was a totally different vibe. It was like I was constantly affirmed for the other things that I brought to the table. And I mean, I certainly wasn't allowed to slack off and right. not care about other, the things that you have to do to be a soldier. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how much gender is a, is a part of that and how much of that's just us figuring out what makes an ideal soldier. So I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of reading. So bear with me. I think you'll be able to tolerate it because it's your writing. <laughs> but I, but I want to, re- I want to read this based off what we're saying. So this is your poem, pre-deployment checklist. Mm. I don't know what the boys did. We put on dresses or wife beaters and went dancing, twirled in the parking lot until we puked. We shared masturbation stories in the ocean outside of Savannah. 
then took pills to suppress our periods, flattened our boobs into body armor, restricting one need fed another. While our friends back home shaved their curls for a night out, we brought razors on deployment and kept things trim, genuinely concerned about what the medics would say if they had to cut our pants off. We wrote death letters too. Patriotism tinged with self-abandonment. We, we are so few freaks until we met each other. Mm. As a guy, that was so eye-opening to read that and get a little bit of insight into what that experience was like. Mm. Um, And it seems like it touches on a lot of the things we're talking about, about some of the neuroses of being a female in, in certain job fields and yet also, yet also finding that bond and why that bond was necessary and supportive. Um, but also that, that tough delineation between discipline and repression that you, you need the discipline, but discipline, you know, is, is going to have repression and that's not necessarily bad. It's just the right thing at the wrong times, the wrong thing. And trying to figure out where that is. And I, you know, I'm those experiences in that poem, I was 24 and I was going on my second deployment. I'm 35 and a mom and I haven't been on active duty in a couple of years. And so if I was in that position, I don't think I would, you know, it's, I think it's a say self-abandonment. Mm-hmm. I think the original version said self-mutilation and we might've changed it to abandonment. Uh-huh. Um, I know, but I, now at this age, I know I wouldn't have to do all of those things. So some of that was definitely the environment. Like, I mean, everything changes. The army is different now than it was 10 years ago, but I'm different too. So a lot of the, the weird decisions we made about, you know, like taking pills to not have your period. I didn't personally do that, but I know a lot of women that did. I wouldn't have to do that now because I'm not, I'm not worried about it. And if like a bro sees my tampon, like, sorry, right, you know, or the right. medic to cut my pants off and it's like, holy shit. And I'm like, well, this is probably not the grossest thing you've seen today. Right. Um, right. But, tw- but 24 year old, 24 year old Amy was like, I cannot inconvenience the men I'm working with by letting any of this feminine stuff show. And I think back too, like I'm, I've always been real, there's always been, there's always shitheads. Like no matter what you do, where you go, there's always going to be shitheads. But I've also been really lucky to work with a lot of amazing men and women. And for the most part, I look back at the men that I was deployed with, they probably would have laughed about stuff like that. Right. Like there really wouldn't right. have been as big of a deal. Even like, like, you know, guys piss all the time. Like, it's not a weird thing, but I was right. so concerned about like, but I have to drop my pants to piss. So this is like a whole ordeal now. Right. And it just, it really doesn't need to be that. But it's also, it's also incredibly understandable. I mean, yeah. like, you know, most, I mean, I think civilian women of just about any age would have gone through that same thought process if they suddenly were thrust into a deployment where it's mm-hmm. like, Hey, these are, you know, you're coming from a first world mindset and going into holy crap, all right, what do I do in this situation? How does all this, how do I square this circle, you know? Yeah. When did you write that poem? Um, I think that that is a poem that pieces of it probably came from, like, I think that I have expressed bits of that over time. And... <clears throat> 
it, I didn't, it was probably the year before the manuscript I put together. I think maybe when I was in that writing class, I compiled those ideas because I had talked about those, some of those stories that are in that poem have been their own story. Again, there's a lot of stories yeah. in there. Yeah. Like literally there are women who will read that and go, I remember when we had that conversation or I remember when we did that. I'm like, right. sorry, that's our, that's our story in my poem now. But um, yeah, I think I put that all together probably a year before I submitted the manuscript. Uh, just because you said that, I, I want to ask, have you, um, do you have any uh, neuroses about, uh, let me, I'm just making this term up, about the Taylor Swift syndrome, where you're writing about people that you know, and you're like, oh, shit, they're going to read this and go, hey, that was me. What the hell? Um, um, anything like that? Does that ever cross your mind? No. I mean... I mean, I have had some experiences like that. For the most part, the stories and the poems that I share, like it'll have references my girlfriends will get. And for them, it's just entertaining or it's something to bond over. Like it's not embarrassing. There have definitely been times where I've like posted a poem on Instagram and someone would be like, hey, is that about me? And I'd be like, uh, no, no, it's not. <laughs> like I wrote that five years ago. I just met you. Like, no. Right. Um, also, it's super this is so silly. I was listening to you, your interview with Buck. Um, uh-huh. and you were, you guys were having a conversation about his writing style. And so I was like nervous about being on a podcast and I was like, Oh shit. If he asks me like, who's my writing? Like I literally thought I'm like, if Taylor Swift went to war, I feel like that's my vibe. <laughs> that's not a bad comparison. She's a good writer. I think she's, she's a good, great. really good writer. Actually, I'm at her level, but that's like, that's, that's how I would describe my vibe, I guess, aspirationally speaking. No, I love it. Um, it's, have you, I, I guess this is a safe question to, to ask you. Have you ever censored yourself from writing? Cause you're like, ah, that's, that's going to dime out this person, or that's going to cut a little too close to the bone for somebody else. Not necessarily you, but because, because your stuff is so autobiographical, I guess everybody's is, but the way you write, you, you, it's pretty transparent. You can see an awful lot of things going on with you, right? I definitely do. Um, there is a whole bunch of stuff that I will not share, you know, cause like I said, I'm working through things that don't necessarily, I don't necessarily want to share. Um, I struggle with that. I mean, even just like, you know, I have this Instagram that I created to connect with other writers and my mom follows my account. And I'm like, okay, so nothing about mom and dad and no sex poems because my fucking mom is yeah. reading my Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely censorship that happens. I tried really hard with this to be as authentic as possible. Um, but there's and – I, and I think as I grow and as I get older, I get more comfortable being authentic and and vulnerable in my writing, but absolutely. There's always some censorship that's happening. I wish I could like disengage it. Cause I think that there's a lot of potential in there, but it's just human nature. Totally. You have to be almost sociopathic to do that, to go, you know, like, yeah, to find that way around it. Yeah. Um, in your mind, mm-hmm. when are you done with a poem? Oh man. I don't think I don't. Oof. Um, there are, Sometimes, sometimes a poem feels done. Most of the time, it never feels done. That's fair. So I think there are some, 
And you know what? It's always the ones that come about super organically. Like I'm driving in my car and it's like angels just shoot it into my head and I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I write it on my phone and then it stays like that forever. Um, but most of the time, if I sit down and write, it'll never feel, it'll never feel hundred percent. There's poems in there that I tore up so many times and eventually just had to be like, you know what? I give it to the world and you guys can tear it apart and I'm done with it. I have to make peace with this. Have you read the book since it came out? Have you gone through it and read it? Or have you gone, I don't even want to go there because I'll start diving into it and rewriting. I mean, I had to go through it a lot through editing. I think Mm -hmm. the, you know, the final phase of they like mail, I forget what it's called. They mail like a copy of it, the hard copy. So you can see what it looks like. I'll print it out. Yeah. Yeah, the proof. Yeah, I read through that um, a couple of times. But even at that point, it's like I'm not even my eyes are not useful at reading it anymore because you've read it so many times. It's all blurring together. Um, But I don't I don't think I'll ever read it again unless somebody makes me. (laughs) Yeah. Do you feel is there any sense that you've kind of unburdened yourself from some of these that you're like, hey, cool. I captured that emotion or that feeling or that moment and I'm done with it now. That yeah. there's a bit of therapy where it's like, hey, that that part's over now. I'm good. I feel super. The writing process is super cathartic for me. I think there's there's a conversation to be had about, you know, is poetry for you or is poetry for other people? And I I would love to write beautiful poetry that is meaningful to others, but I only know how to be super emo and write about myself. Um, or write a, write what I'm feeling or write from my perspective. Um, so the side effect of that is I get a lot of healing and processing and just, yeah, this book being done. Yeah. I feel like this weight has lifted and it's also been super cool to share it. I have no idea who's, how many people have bought the book or who's read the book, but I know a lot of my close friends have who ha- are in it, have been through these experiences with me. And it's been a really special experience to relive some of those memories and reflect on them together. So it's funny, you know, um, I I think, I can't remember who said this. Somebody said it. I'm sure probably many people have said it, but uh, I want to say like Woody Allen said it or something, but basically that you, um, that every artist basically has one or two subjects that they found Mm. that got them into it, whatever that art is. And they spend the rest of their lives just trying to, dev that out and just break it down and explore other aspects of it. Do you feel that way for yourself or do you feel like, no, you know, something I've kind of gotten into, you know, especially the, your poems on loss on war. And you're like, Nope, I've, I've handled that now. And I'm, I'm, and even in your writing, you're noticing that you're moving on to other subjects or do you find that you're still there? I think that, I think that my whether or not it's captured in this book, I'm not sure, but my poetry seems to be very focused on relationships and people. And um, I love nature as a metaphor for all things. Mm. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would love to expand and grow and write about any, any life experience that I have. Um, but for whatever reason, I'm just so fascinated with the human experience and humanity and the messiness of being in relationship with each other. 
I think for this book, a lot of that, you know, grief and becoming a mother and my friendships with my, you know, sisterhood, I think that's very clear in this book, but um, I can't see myself ever not writing about people. Would you write about war still? I, I don't know. I'm, I kind of, I, I, I go back and forth. I, you know, my siblings are still active duty. My dad's retired. He spent that. He spent his whole career doing that. He still teaches junior ROTC as a retired person. Mm. Um, so the military is such a part of who I am and my family and my life. Um, but I've also really enjoyed setting down that aspect of myself now that I'm not on active duty. It feels different to not be like so tense and like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just a di- like I, I breathe different and I'm yeah. still in the reserves. Like I put the uniform on sometimes. Sure. I still physically train definitely not as hard as I used to, you know, but I, I don't, on the outside, I don't think I've changed too much, but it, I just feel so much more open and free. And again, that not necessarily doesn't necessarily have to be the case when you're on active duty. That was just how I was. Um, so I have moments where I feel like now's the perfect time to reflect and write about war. But then I'm also I'm so at peace with, I did my time and I'm proud of my service and I'm proud of the next generation moving up and doing their thing. I, I want to have new mountains to climb and I don't want to hyper fixate on my past. And that's kind of where I'm at with war. And you have to kind of like expunge that and get it out there to be done with it, right? To be able to move on from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of people don't have safe spaces to talk about it. And I think that's why it comes out on these weird, aggressive online platforms. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. No, I was going to ask one thing, but I'm, I'm, I'm changing my mind. Um, Cause I, I think, uh, I think you answered a lot of that. It's, it is really funny. The, the, the fine line between the therapeutic writing and the professional writing that I think all professional writing has to be therapeutic in one way, shape or form, because you you can't have one without the other. It's got to move you. It's got to move the needle for you personally. Well, it's like, it's being genuine and authentic. Like I, you know, I read a lot of fiction and I, I, I'd love to write fiction. Like I'm working on getting in that direction, but like, it sounds so stupid, but like writing a character that is not me, I can, I can obviously describe other people, but I don't know how to write from any other place, but empathy. And so, you know, they say things like you can only write what you know. Um, but I don't know what it's like to be a dude. So how do I write dude characters? You know? Um, I mean, I love that experience and I love that process and I'm, I'm deeply challenging myself to do that. But yeah, how do you write things that are not exactly what happened to you, but still put enough empathy and passion into it for it to be believable and enjoyable for a reader. I, I think it's not only a great question. I think it's also the great answer. I, mm-hmm. You have to, I think it's so stifling to, to not, to, I, I, that's why I hate it when people say, Oh yeah, write what you know. It's like, yeah, sometimes, uh, but the beauty of it is to write what you don't know, mm-hmm. um, to, to get into areas that's like, I have no fucking idea, but I want to, I want to figure it out. 
and I might screw it up. And I'm, that's my freedom is to be wrong and to not see it through the right lens or to miss something. But I'm going to take a stab at it. If everybody just did what they know, Steven Spielberg never would have made a movie. It's like he has done any of that stuff. Like, you, like if you're going to be an artist, you're going to have to explore those areas that you're not as familiar with and try to find a way to transpose that, I think, onto whatever medium you're working. That's probably one of the things that appeals to me the most about writing. I have never had the problem of trying new things. I have the problem of picking out of that. Like I, I yes. enjoy everything. I want to, I want to go everywhere. I want to learn every language. I want to eat all the food. I want to yeah. play every sport. Like I, I've always had the too much on my plate. How do I focus? It's still my problem. I'm like, I'm reading three books and trying to write three things and I need to like focus. Um, but you know, the idea of like, if I only have this life and what can I fill it with? If I write about 800 different lives, then I kind of like get to cheat a little bit and experience those things that I don't have time to do. A hundred percent. I can't remember if I said this on the show before, but that was, uh, you know, De Niro's comment about acting mm. is, as he said, he said, what I love about acting is that I get to live somebody else's life, but with no, none of the consequences. So I can go and kill somebody yeah. on the movie and I never have to suffer the consequences of it. And I just get to walk in the, a mile in his shoes and then that's pretty funny. pull out of it. I, I but I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you get out of active duty? Why did you come off active duty? Um, well, it was kind of a little bit messy. I, like I said, I had always been struggling with this, what I felt was a dichotomy of being like a super closed off professional monster and being like this sensitive poet. Um, and I, I was about, I was 30 and I was like, if I only live one life, don't I want to say that I gave this part of me a shot too? Um, and I was really struggling with that. And I was in this window of being about nine years active duty. And then I found out I was pregnant um, and um, going to be a single parent. And so I was like, I, you know, I was in an MOS that deployed a lot, but even if I wasn't <clears throat> for, you know, for people who don't know, like, even if you're not deploying, like army days are long days. Yeah. And I, I just, I didn't want to be, and I, there's no judgment here because what everybody does with their family, I sure. respect. But sure. for me, I just didn't want someone else to be with my kid for 12 hours a day. Um, so my daughter was, the, was the big, you know, pushing point for me to leave active duty. And I definitely have days where I miss it, but I would not trade anything for the time I've had with her. And because of you know, terminal leave and uh, postpartum leave and um, a really great savings account. Like I got to stay home with her for a couple of months, which is really special. Um, yeah. Being a mom was like the best accident that ever happened to me. So, but that's I, why I like beauty. That's a perfect segue for me to compliment you on your writing about motherhood. I, I thought it was beautiful. I'm not going to do any spoilers on it for people to go check it out for themselves. Because um, I think they should probably take that journey with you in those mm -hmm. poems. But um, I loved it. And I also don't want to give any spoilers because I think the bittersweet nature of some of those poems is uh, really fulfilling as a reader, as mm -hmm. much as it's sometimes a little unsettling to read um, your poem with the last line, 
I know it wasn't me you hated mm. um, was a, a, a rough one um, in, in a good way. It wasn't, yeah. it was, it was jarring uh, and disturbing, intriguing. Um, do you think you're done writing about those experiences specifically um, the relationships, the initial stages of, of motherhood, or do you think those are themes that you'll find yourself coming back to? Um, I mean, there are some deep wounds that came from that relationship that kind of still rear their head. Like, I think I'm done with it. And then I'll be writing about something else. And I'm like, Oh, that was real angry. Where'd that come? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if I'll ever be done writing about motherhood though. It's such a, it's such a journey and a process and every phase is different. I mean, every like two days, she's a whole new person and I have to adapt to her growing into this full human. Um, I think what, you know, every, my life, like everything in my life seems to have happened at the perfect time, right? Like I left active duty and my daughter was born and I found this, space for my voice that I didn't have before. And for me, that is intimately tied up in becoming a mother. I think I lived with this idea of, I don't know, just being willing to settle for myself, like internally with who I was being willing to cut corners on things or settling for less than maybe what I deserve or what I could achieve. Um, and then I have my daughter. And I mean, even before she was old enough to walk and talk and observe me. I just had this feeling of like, I'm her first role model in everything. And she's going to watch me go through life. And I cannot give her a shitty example. You know, I like, even when she was an infant, I would think about like, you know, she's going to ask me why this happened or why did we go here? Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden the stakes were so much higher in my life. And I just wanted to be a better version of myself. It's, it's kind of cliche to say, but it's deeply true, you know, so whether that was in, you know, relationships I found myself in or being willing to write, you know, like I, I want her, whatever crazy shit she's passionate about, like I want her to feel empowered to do that. And so I can't live a life where I'm suppressing myself and then think that she's going to not get that same message. I think that was a big part of me being willing to share writing. It's been a slow process of being confident enough to share writing, but that's kind of where it started. Let me ask you about that. So where, um, how did you hook up with uh, Dead Reckoning Collective? How did you get the book in front of uh, those guys? And um, what was the decision-making process like for you to kind of flip the switch and go, yeah, I'm ready to share this publicly and kind of go pro as it were? Um, gosh, I think I've read a lot of advice from other authors and I've read, you know, books on writing and I, I, I knew that at some point I was going to have to put writing out there. Like you, uh, can, you can only do it privately for so long if you actually want to share it. Yeah. You know, the, like we talked about the idea of like, you're going to have to work on your craft and to work on your craft, you're going to need feedback from other people. So years ago, I made a blog. Um, and it's so funny because I never shared it with anybody because I didn't actually want anyone to see it, but it was sure. my mental process of like, I have writing and it is on the internet. So someone could see it. Um, it's so funny. I'm sure it's probably still live out there. 
Um, blah, that's so. Is it under your own name or is it a pseudonym? Um, I don't remember. I don't. I mean, I don't think it had sex hour on it. It might have okay. had in it. I can't remember at this point. Um, and then at some point that just kind of fell by the wayside. Um, at some point I made my current Instagram, I made it a public account and I started following writers and posting writing for a long time. I never had my name on it or my face or my life or anything. And I mean, I don't, I don't really know how I got connected with dead reckoning. I think I just found them, you know, through the algorithm of the internet. Yeah. I definitely have other friends that are veterans that write or do creative things. And um, for me, Instagram has been a great place to connect with people. Um, And it's just been this slow process of like, I posted a poem and somebody liked it and somebody had feedback and somebody invited me to read something here. And, Hmm. you know, I took that class with dead reckoning. That was, um, I met, you know, I met like 20 different veteran writers in that class and they're all super cool and super supportive People, you know, send each other stuff. Um, And I, you know, I honestly think it was sharing little bits on Instagram and getting feedback from other people that like it wasn't super shitty. Uh, (laughs) Um, And then last spring, Dead Reckoning did that live poetry reading. I don't know if you participated or watched that. I I, I didn't. I know of it now, but yeah, I did not. Yeah. And. And they reached out and asked me to do one. And I was like, why? Why do you want me to do it? Like, there's like people on here who are good. Um, and I did it. And first of all, my friends pumped me up so much about it, which I, I love and appreciate them. Even if I suck, I know that they love me. And it's so great. Um, they really encouraged me. Like my mom watched it and my siblings watched it. And it's like, I don't even think any of them knew that I was trying to write. Yeah. more seriously um so that really was like you're coming out right then yeah so well for of- a lot of people that weren't like my closer friends that i vented mm-hmm. about stuff right um, but after that you know keith from dead reckoning was like hey do you have anything and i was like keith i have thousands of poems <laughs> and he was like well put something together and send it to me so i took about a month to pour through journals and stuff and put it together to send to them when do you actually write? Is it a, uh, is it first of, is it, is it a daily thing? Is it a inspiration has to strike thing? Is it a discipline crack the whip? No matter what I'm going to put in 20 minutes every day. I mean, what, what is it for you? I want to be the disciplined person. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times it's inspiring. Honestly, when I'm driving, a lot of stuff will come to me and I have like thousands of notes on my phone. Cause it things, you know, as I'm just daydreaming or thinking about stuff, it'll come to me. I go through phases of being more disciplined. Um, I'm a morning person, so I would love to wake up every day and have my coffee and write. Um, But with a toddler, a lot of times it'll be after she goes to bed and I'm still awake and I've got some time to think. Um, Definitely when I was putting the book together, that was like the most um, consistent time. But I just, I, I adapt to whatever season of life is, making it more difficult. So you're not religious about, Oh man, it, it, I can only write in the morning. Like that's it. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I want to be, but if I was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have you never get done. Yeah, yeah. I never get done. When you do write, is there, do you write for length? Do you write for time? Do you write for until I fully capture this idea or, you know, what's your, what's your. So 
I'd say up until the last year, I was just writing what I was feeling. Like it was very much that we said, just me processing stuff. Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily have a writing goal, something I was writing towards. But now I have things that I want to write. And so I I will set goals for myself. Um, But again, you know, I'm like, I'm a parent and I have a job and other things. And so I, as long as I'm writing, I don't beat myself up too much. Like I feel really good about, I got some ideas out or, you know, that was definitely a shitty first draft, but I worked through what I'm not going to say. Right. Um, yeah. I know there are people who have like word counts. They try to hit every day and maybe I'll get to that point, but I'm not there yet. Do you try though to write every day? Do you try to like allocate time for that or is it catch as catch can? Yes. Um, but it definitely comes in phases. There are like, I'd say, you know, the book came out in December after we were done editing the book, there was a couple of weeks where I was just reading and I wasn't really like I had tapped myself. Right. Right. Yeah. um, Creatively. And, but I read a fuck ton of books in that time and I felt good about, I was kind of recharging my battery. I hope I can swear on here. I apologize. Oh No, no, you totally can swear. Yeah. No, 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 no. We are, we are not a, uh, a PG show. No, you're, you're good. Um, yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I think that's, um, I think that's actually, like the by the book, uh, required dosage of writing is that you write every day, and then once you've completed something, even if it's not fully submitted, but once you've like actually got something, you're supposed to take two weeks or a month off and either do another project or just read or yeah, recharge that battery, and before you go back in and get that uh, kind of clear head a little bit. So yeah, I think that that makes a ton of sense. Um. I think you've kind of answered this, but I just want to press for this a little bit more. Being that you are still in the reserves, um, and so you, you know, got to stay in shape, and you, you know, there's obligations that do still come up. Um, do you feel like you're? Do you feel in any way like that holds you back creatively? Like you're like, yeah, I'm. I can't. I can't go a hundred percent into my right brain you know, exploding and doing all this stuff. I, I have to walk in a room and people respect me. So if they've been seeing me on Instagram, I can't let loose and just, you know, lose all composure there or completely indulge in my creative self. Is there any sense of that? Yeah, there, there is. I think, I think because I feel so much different from active duty, I don't quite, I'm not as aware of it, Mm. but it's definitely still there. And it's definitely something I thought about if there's subjects that I shouldn't write about or things that I shouldn't say, or, you know, the stuff that gets shared on the internet, like I'm still hyper aware of, um, there being, you know, potential consequences. Right. Um, and I wonder what it would feel like to just cut that sling load completely. Um, I do, I'm very lucky. I have a really good gig and I, and I enjoy it and it feels meaningful. So I don't, I don't necessarily want to leave the reserves yet, but I have thought that I will probably go through a whole new phase of writing once I'm completely out. Yeah. Um, the other side of it though, is I, based on what I do with the reserves, um, the timing of it and the type of job it is, I'm almost more concerned that I've gone so far that whenever I put the uniform back on, I'm like, Oh my God, I forgot how to wear this. I I have to like get my mindset back in. And luckily it's super laid back and everyone's kind towards me if I make a mistake, (laughs) but 
you know, I like drive on to Fort Bragg and I'm like, oh my God, what people have their hair different now. Do I have the right hat? Like, right. I'm a right. hot. I used to be hard. I'm a hot mess now. No, no, no. That makes a ton of sense actually. Cause um, I, I think that to still have one foot in the military, I think is a really hard um, mental shift for an artist because, mm. because then they're, you're going into that highly, you know, just even if you're just brushing shoulders with that highly regimented lifestyle, it, it it's jarring. It's like, holy crap, wait, oh, I'm, that's where I'm supposed to be doing this. And, you know, um, you know, where I used to notice that was um, writing, military writing. I'd phrase something and they'd be like, why did she just say this? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the straightforward way of saying that. That's right. I'm, I'm over here being I creative. I have that problem all the time. I like with creative writing, they'll be like, why do you sound like a robot? And then I'll have like, an online class I have to take or a report I have to write. And they're like, this is all passive voice. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, I'm like, I'm a poet. Damn it. <laughs> I'm like, Deb, don't you see the nuance of the levels that I brought into this <laughs> yeah. thing? Don't you have a more 360 degree understanding of this problem now? I had, I've had a couple of awkward days, like in front of the students. Well, mostly it's just because I'm getting older. I'm not really operationally relevant. So like when I'm teaching them, I mean, even just with technology, like technology has changed so quickly. And like the last time I did a deployment was 2015. It was a totally different world. Um, so I don't feel old, but when I'm in front of students, I feel super old. They make me feel old. Um, how many people that you actively work with and, and interact with on a regular basis know that you do poetry? Um. Actually, I think ever I think everyone at my civilian job knows about the book coming out. I mean, they all follow me on social media. Um, yeah, they're super supportive. I mean, I'm, it's one of those things where I'm like, you guys don't need to read it. I don't want to. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, which is so different because when I was in the army and I wrote, I would never tell anybody, and I still like no, I'm not going to tell anyone at my reserve job. Like we don't need to talk about it. It's not the same Amy. It's a different sex hour. Like I don't really. So, so no one in the military knows or in your unit. That's not something you share. No, I don't think so. I mean, they don't, again, I only see them a couple days of the year. Um, it's not a normal, it's not your normal one, one weekend a month reserve gig for those who know what that means. Um, so I only see them occasionally and we all, and we just, we were focused on work, you know, we're like problem solving work stuff. But my civilian day-to-day job, like, you know, they know my daughter and like sure. right down the street, like it's much, they're much more involved in my life. Um, so, but I'm proud of myself for not hiding it from them. Cause I think five years ago, I would have definitely not shared it. Right. I, I, I mean, it makes me one, I'm just thinking if it was me, I would feel like that might inhibit me a little bit because it's like, oh, you know, my daughter, like, oh, so when I'm mm-hmm. writing about this now, you're looking at it through my eyes in context of a different headspace or time frame or something like that. Is that been the case for you or is the neuroses kind of passed and you're like, yeah, whatever, this is what I write and deal with it. Um, I mean, I think those things come up and I try to lean into it in order to, you know, keep forcing myself to grow as a writer. Um, but we talked before about sensors. Like there's definitely some times where I'm like, well, my boss can't read that poem, so it's not going in the book. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, so you, so yeah, okay, so there is still that 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 file of things that 
Yeah. Or for and you only. Yeah. Again, like for me, writing is very much processing the things that I go through. So there are a lot of things that maybe that would be great content for a fictional story. Um, but in a very personal book of poetry, I'll, I'll hold back some stuff. So talk to me about where this is going. So you said you, I, I was going to ask anyway, because there is, there's so many narratives uh, that go along with the themes and, and, and the work that you've done in this book. So talk, talk to me about the fiction. Are, are the, are, how far along are you in your creative process with that? Or how much are you noodling with that mentally and just trying to you know, organize a bag of ideas? Where do you see yourself going with all this? Um, I've been all over the place. <laughs> um, I have, last year I had two projects that I worked on and uh, like fiction stories. Um, one more fantasy, one more sci-fi. And I did work on them, but you know, the more I write, the more I need to learn. And mm. the last year and a half, I, um, I put some articles out with different publications and I very much treated those articles as like getting my reps in and practicing. And I kind of had this feeling over the holiday season when I took a little bit of a break that I, I have this book I want to write. And it's, it's like this huge concept and I'm still very much a new writer, especially when it comes to fiction. Um, I've written some short stories, but I know people who are in this get it. It sounds so silly, but like having narrative control for three to 500 pages is like, Holy shit, this is hard to do. Like I can write a report and I can write poetry, whether it's good or not is up for debate, but like putting a story together is challenging. And so, um, I kind of decided this year, I I have an idea for a very simple novel, um, a fiction novel. Um, I don't know how to explain it. I basically just, it's like, I want to give myself a practice rep. Like I'm taking, I'm taking all of the stress about it being great off the table. And I'm like, I just need to write a book and it's probably going to be messy and the characters won't be super developed. And it's, might none of my friends will find an interesting content, but I want to make myself do it and learn and let myself learn through doing. Um, and I, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to try to direct the, you know, direct Amazon publish, just digital publish it, but like do that to keep myself accountable. Um, so I have been working on that and yeah, aiming for about a 300 page book by the end of the year, but again, super low threat, like, how how far along are you with this? Have you outlined it? Have you written it? Or wh- where are um, you with it? I'm I'm still kind of writing my characters. Like I'm okay. letting my and again I've never done this before, so right. we're learning as we're doing. Right. And I'm letting myself kind of deep dive with different characters. Um, I have a very loose idea of a plot, but I want to get to know these characters a little bit, and then I'll see what happens. What are your um where are you taking inspiration, guidance, direction? Is there anything you're using as as scaffolding to kind of go, oh yeah, this gives me kind of an idea of some benchmarks I should hit or some things Um, I need to look for? I mean, I have a great community and I've had a couple of classes, but honestly reading books I've read. And I I found this, I kind of joke on Instagram about reading romance novels because I'd never read romance novels before. And literally last year, like I'm out of the army. I'm like, I'll try this out. And I discovered I like romance novels. So I make fun of myself for this. But I've discovered this super cool community of primarily women 
through Instagram who write romance novels. And they're not at all what I expected. They're all different kinds of people. And because nowadays you can direct publish, it's just this community of people supporting each other in their writing. And it's been super fun to engage with them. Um, I feel super encouraged to take the risk and just, you know, yeah. see what happens. Um, it's been, it's taken so much of the intimidation out of it. Like I'm, I'm not Tolkien. I will never write Lord of the Rings. I just won't. So right. let's way lower and chill out. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, so far, how's the process been for you emotionally? Do you find it liberating? Do you find it like, holy shit, I can do this now and I can do this because I'm not tied to some emotional reality that I actually experience. I can make stuff up and I can, yeah. you know, I've got wide open spaces to roam in. I mean, last year I was feeling really intimidated. I was feeling very intimidated by the breadth of a novel and how do you, I mean, again, like I have been thinking about writing books my whole life when I actually sit down to try to do it. It's a lot harder than I expected. Um, Yes, it feels liberating. I'm, I mean, it's still emotionally intense because that's just who I am. And I'm there. I don't, every character I'm writing has some of my skin in the game and I'm going to feel it and it's going to fuck me up a little bit. That's the only way I know how to do it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, but yeah, it's super liberating to just be like, no, that's not me. That is a, that is a character. I have never been through that experience. <laughs> how are you finding dialogue? Do you, are you enjoying it? Is it a struggle? You know, dialogue, I feel like when I'm, if I'm running or driving or doing something else, I have good dialogue ideas. Mm. When I sit down to think too hard about dialogue directly, it sounds super forced and awkward. Yeah. Also the formatting of it. I'm like, I know there's, I hate, like, there's a reason why editors make so much money. Cause I'm yeah. just, can I just this person said that and they said that, like, why do I have to space it? Do I put a line? Do I put the quote C thingies? The formatting kills me, but I'm not there yet. You know what I hate is indents uh, for that person for the start of a new paragraph. Mm -hmm. I hate For some reason I hate doing that. I just like putting a space between the last line and the first line of the next paragraph, but all flush left. Yeah. Um, and I constantly have to remind myself that's not how it's done, but yeah. I feel like everything I learned in English growing up, has been thrown out the window. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel like this was a big deal in high school, but we're not doing it. Like the double spaces after a period. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a no, no. nowadays. Yeah, that's right. That's out of vogue. Yeah. Oh, I'm super loyal to the Oxford comma. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, um, I, I mean, I, I think I just want to make a point uh, and just kind of foot stomp something you said earlier about, um, reading so much. Did you ever hear that quote? And again, I don't know who said it, or who, I, but it's, so, I think, so common and ubiquitous now. But that quote that uh, to write one book, you have to have read a thousand. So, you know, I have not heard that, there's that I, ratio. Yeah. You know, and this is something I, that I, I have made this point with my friends about reading romance novels, because especially when I was on active duty in the army, I, I would shame myself about what I should be reading. Um. And I would say most of my life, I probably averaged, you know, about five books a year. Maybe when I was younger, a little bit more because you had so much school. That's great reading. though. Yeah. Last year, I read over 120 books. Holy crap. But it's because I let myself read whatever I wanted to read for the first time. Instead of thinking, 
somebody's going to know I read this or I'm going to have to talk about it at work. I just read what I wanted to read. And I still squeezed in there a handful of, of the important books or the classics or the whatever. Respectable books in case somebody asks you what you're reading. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it's wild because, you know, I mean, those were in different genres, but I'll say like a large part of that was romance novels. And the more you read, the more you see the formula of how the book is written and the less intimidating it is because you're like, okay, so there's this consistent plot pattern or there's this consistent character development. Like you see, the more you read, the more you see yeah. it, it's less intimidating. And, and I, and because I enjoy those books, I'm not burnt out on reading them at all. Whereas I still benefit largely from reading military books and I appreciate them deeply. I've had significant emotional experiences reading them, but I have to drag through them. Yeah. It'll take me weeks to finish like a military you know, book of nonfiction or fiction. Um, but I'll rip through these fantasy and romance and sci-fi books and just enjoy it. And then after six months, be like, I have a really good idea for a book. And I'm going to steal some plot points from all of those books I read. Can you read military fiction? I, I find it really impossible to read uh, just for me because I start, I'm like, you know, this is, you didn't get that right or this didn't sound right or something like, I just start to get distracted by all that. But th- is have, that just me or do you have that? Thought? I have not really read any modern fiction. Mm. I think I've only read like, like some of the, I guess what I'll call classics. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not, I mean, even, I, I even kind of struggle with military films, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, I can absolutely appreciate them artistically, um, but I don't, I don't enjoy feeling all those feelings sometimes to have to be like in the right headspace to watch them. So again, not to make this an Oprah moment or, or play armchair psychiatrist here, but I, I, I just, it occurs to me. So I'm just going to ask, um, being that you've mined a lot of the war experiences and obviously, you know, we our bandwidth for military stories starts to winnow. I think, um, after you've lived them a little bit, uh, do you think there's a sense, uh, and I'm, I'm going back to your poetry, sorry, this could be a long-winded question, but yeah, I'm going back to your poetry where you, and I forget which one it was, but you said something about, you know, you know, I was kind of androgynous looking early on and, you know, I'm a bit of a, kind of the picture that the reader has before I ever talked to you, which is, oh, you're a bit of a tomboy. Okay. And that was yeah. my impression. Um, do you think that you're finding, for lack of a better word, more womanhood, more femininity now um, as you separate more and more from the military and as you do more and more writing and that your interest naturally is going to veer away from war and into the romance stuff and into really just um, archetypal feminine subjects of just kind of embracing this, that it's kind of just fully real fleshing out the three-dimensional character of you? That. Certainly that has happened for me. Um, but I think it would be, um, not capturing the full picture to say that I went from one to the other. I, I, I think the journey has definitely been for a long time suppressing certain aspects yeah. of myself, yeah. assuming that success meant I had to, and, and again, even while I was on active duty, I started to learn that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, I think the big turning point was having my daughter and, you know, being pregnant and giving birth was such a profound experience. And, and also it was so powerful. I, again, I had this sort of 
idea that the woman things were soft and gentle and nurturing and like having a baby is fucking violent. <laughs> Not, you know, like you see it, but until you go yeah. through and like yeah. when you're literally giving birth, you're like, this is hard. This is the hardest thing I've ever done. All that army shit was hard, but this is fucking hard. And it was so affirming to me that the most womanly aspect of myself was also really tough. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And, and that that wasn't so that wasn't necessarily at odds with the person that I thought I needed to be right. a successful soldier. So I, I definitely had more space and freedom to kind of lean into feminine aspects of myself, but I've come full circle to realizing that who I am is not in competition with who I am. Like I am, yeah, yeah. I can like romance and I can also be kind of tough. And also, and honestly, I think I've made a lot of peace with like, Cause I think I thought I was suppressing my femininity and now I'm like, well, I'm, I'm just not that kind of woman. I'm still a right. woman. Right. And, you know, I don't know if this is like an awkward thing to discuss, but um, I don't, how do I say this? I'll, I'll just give an example. Like I assumed when I left active duty, I'd wear makeup more because I couldn't. Huh. In the and so I went through a little phase of wearing more makeup, but I don't really wear it anymore because it's yeah. like, Oh, well, actually, I guess I'm just not that into it, but I definitely had to go through a time where I could experiment more. Right. Um, and, and it's just funny that I've sort of settled into like, Oh, I guess I'm, I guess that wasn't as big of a deal as I thought it was going to be. But it is, it is, um, it, it's like inflating, a a, a like one of those, uh, I don't know, inflatable, uh, this, this, <laughs> sorry, I'm getting lost in the sauce of my words here. Um, but like like inflating any kind of uh you know character balloon where it's like oh okay I'm, I just got to blow up all the parts there's one part that's had a lot of air for a while yeah, but yeah. and it's and it's really taut and it's just these other parts now I got to get that other arm inflated you know yeah, and it's yeah. and it's just developing what's always been there yeah um that makes a ton of sense to me I can I can yeah that that makes a lot of sense Amy holy crap do you realize we've almost done two hours. Wow, I haven't sat still that long in a long time. That was awesome. Um, I I really appreciate it. This is um, I, I love the book. I can't wait to see what else you come up with, and how this and how your your journey kind of continues uh, literarily. <laughs> um, but I um, and especially if it's something so uh, unpredictable and so such a sharp gear shift, like if it was a romance novel, I think that's just crazy cool and i'm i'm really excited to see what happens i'll use a pen name to protect myself there you go ah i see okay see there's there's some value in the pseudonym game there there makes a lot of sense for it sex hour writes a romance novel everyone's gonna be like (laughs) it's two on the nose yeah 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 listen um i'm excited i'm excited to see what comes down the the path for you but this was a blast and thanks a million for uh let me take up a couple hours of your day and to talk about this because this was um, a lot of stuff there to relate to. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. That was the savage wonder of Amy Sex Hour. Her book, Poppies, is available everywhere. You can buy fine books and literature, including Amazon. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. As always, opinions expressed do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. Check out what's going on with us 
at vetrep.org. That is the best place to find out not just what's going on with us, but also subscribe to this podcast. Uh, You can also subscribe to our literary blog. If you like reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to the literary blog and you will get it delivered to your inbox every day. The best way to do that is to go to vetrep.org, go to the Now Playing tab, and you will see all your options to subscribe to the literary blog as well as to the podcast. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. Uh, You can say whatever you want to us, questions, comments, snide remarks, all kinds of critiques, criticism, constructive and otherwise. But if you can just put five stars in the review, that would be dynamite. We also welcome your feedback on social. So Facebook or Instagram, we are at Veterans Repertory Theater. That's Veterans Repertory Theater, and I know no one knows how to spell repertory. So it is R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y Theater with E-R, not R-E. So at Veterans Repertory Theater on Facebook or Instagram, and at Vet Rep Theater on Twitter, if you happen to do the whole Twitter thing. If you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to our literary blog, go to vetrep.org, go to the Submissions tab, and it will have all the information you need to submit your work. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.